Hello, and welcome once again to Voices and Innovation from GigaOM. I am your host, Johnny Baldisberger, and today I have with me David Linthicum. Uh, David, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you have a you have a spiel that I enjoy listening to. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm uh, really kind of getting down. I'm author, speaker, um, B-list geek. I've been doing the whole, um, you know, thought leadership in the computing space for probably the last 30 years, written 13 books, about 5,000 articles, spoke a thousand times at different, different uh, conferences over the years. That was before the, uh, before the pandemic, of course, uh, when everything went virtual. And also just kind of really focus on what's innovative, what's moving. So I kind of focused on where the ball is going to be kicked, what we're going to be doing next, how the patterns of architecture are changing, and how best to get enterprises kind of aligned. So my idea of leveraging technology is really kind of doing so with a pragmatic bent. So it, it is a, you know, typically going to be a thought leadership spiel, but it's also you know, how we can solve problems with this stuff. And uh, kind of having the ranking file, you know, IT manager in mind, you know, the people have to go off every day and uh, and solve these issues with these tools and technologies. Fantastic, and you know, I I am always of the mind that anyone who is in technology, anyone who's an analyst, especially, should be someone who's always looking forward. And uh, I think a a nice pop culture reference would be Tony Stark, uh, a futurist, someone who's always trying to not just guess what's coming, but what's the thing after the thing that's coming, right? Um, and part of what we do at GigaOM is we put out these reports, these key criteria reports. Now, I've talked a lot about them on this show uh, with uh, Ned Bellavance, Chris Grundeman, Enrica, all these analysts who've written key criteria reports, but I want to make sure that our audience understands what the key criteria report is. It's a report that yeah, looks at an emerging technology and breaks it up into uh, essentially three different uh, categories. The table stakes, which are the things that it has to have. Uh, I mentioned to Chris Grundeman that the AC in a car, the wheels, these are things that it has to have or you won't consider it. The key actual uh, key criteria, which are the luxuries, the things that are nice, the things that you wanted to have, the, the things that differentiate it from others, and emerging game-changing technology, the things that are really kind of on the horizon over the next 12 to 18 months that are really going to change the face of the technology we're talking about. You very recently, David, wrote a key criteria report on AI ops. And when I first uh, saw it coming down the pipe at GigaOM, I assumed it was a DevOps thing. And then, uh, and then I read your report and I was proven very, well, I say very wrong, but uh, it was not what I expected it to be. Could you just give me a very broad, high-level overview of exactly what AI ops means? Yeah, it's traditional operating tools and technology that are integrated with artificially intelligent machine learning-based systems. So the idea is that if we're going to manage and monitor 
all these various complex deployments. And if we're dealing with cloud and multi-cloud and uh, you know, enterprise architecture, it's typically always gonna be complex. Um, the ability to not only manage and monitor that complexity, but also learn as you go as to what sort of patterns are emerging in terms of how we're going to operate these systems and how we're gonna reach successful conclusions. And also it includes the ability to kind of fix things on the fly. They have some sort of a self-healing infrastructure. So if you're familiar with traditional operational tools and we've been having those around for you know 20 to 30 years, this is really kind of taking those things to the next level and kind of adding the notion of intelligence and the ability to build knowledge models on top of them. And so typically it's two patterns. We're coming from the traditional side where the big software providers are moving into AI ops. We're taking their existing enterprise-based tools and mashing them together with some sort of machine learning-based system. And we're also seeing the new startups, which are purpose-built for machine learning and AI systems uh, from the very beginning. You mentioned in your report that uh, what you've noticed is a lot of enterprises are practicing brand loyalty. They're sticking with the operational tools they had that are slapping on AI ops uh, as they kind of go on and that this is going to create a problem for uh, these startups and new players. Do you think that's going to continue to hold true or do you think that as specialized AI ops shops set up that we're going to see a shift towards uh, more growth from new players? The issue with the Global 2000 companies is that they have a tendency to deal with enterprises and companies they're already familiar with. And they typically have a sales rep that's already walking the halls. They have a loyalty to their account team and they've been dealing with the same people for 20 some odd years. And so if they're going to look at the AI ops market, you know, obviously this is something that's going to be more appealing to them than the existing startups out there that in many instances they've never heard of. I don't know how many conversations I've been in with um, IT leaders from the Global 2000 companies and looking at tools such as AI ops. And quite frankly, you'll bring up some of the more startup names that are not as well known. And just because they've never heard of them, they typically don't consider them. It's a little short-sighted, but I do think that's really how people consume technology out there in the Global 2000 space. Now, the startups in the mid to small businesses, you know, someone say a billion dollars in revenue and below, believe it or not, that's considered kind of a mid-sized to small business. They're going to be more open-minded around the startups in the AI ops space. Um, and they're typically going to bypass the better known brands because they view them as too enterprisey. I actually hear that word a ton and not necessarily going to have the same cost point of the uh, startups. And the startups are typically going to be more willing to wheel and deal and more willing to listen to them in terms of features and functions that they're looking for in the tool. So it's a bit of a trade-off. Um, however, to the point you made, the startups out there typically uh, that are not known in the industry as much as the brand name enterprise players, uh, they're going to exist at a deficit. It's interesting, and you mentioned some of these uh, some of these companies being too enterprisey, and you mentioned the price point in wheeling and dealing. And I think that's, you know, that's always such a chief concern 
um, when dealing with, you know, especially startups. Uh, if you don't manage your money and you don't manage how you're spending, you're not going to last. I would also be interested to watch the growth, uh, the symbiotic growth between, you know, a startup and a AI op startup as they gain speed, gain steam, and, uh, and how that will affect the future market. I actually had a question about uh, a couple of the items that you had put in your key criteria category. Specifically, I noticed that learning systems were key criteria as opposed to table stakes. And I feel like maybe my understanding of of AI might be off a little because I thought learning systems were essentially synon almost synonymous with AI. Yeah, I think that they are synonymous with AI, but the reason that they're kind of put off as desirable criteria is because different AI ops players may use learning models in different ways. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a true machine learning based system that's bolted onto an AI ops based system for it to be effective. That's one of the things I was surprised and I found out in the research that um, many of the organizations that just kind of bolted on an AI machine learning based systems, the enterprise tool players, um, typically uh, were still operating well and doing some very basic rudimentary repository-based um, information gathering over time. And you kind of look at the analytical-oriented tools. So they're used to receiving large amounts of data, and instead of applying that data to teach machine learning-based model, they're doing things such as predictive analytics as part of the play. So in other words, they can look at the data and discern patterns from the data, not necessarily with machine learning or artificially intelligent capabilities, but just really kind of traditional analytical tools. And I think those are effective as well. And so they may call themselves AI hops, but you'll find out when you get beyond the scenes that there's really no AI in the play. And so even though they exist in the category, they're able to, in essence, mimic um, artificially intelligent things, you know, by leveraging advanced algorithms and in, in analyzing the data and determining predictive patterns and acting on those predictive patterns. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a complex thing. And so if you do run into an AI ops tool and there's no AI that's really a part of the tool, in other words, it's kind of a marketing play, um, they wash their tool with a, you know, their AI washing as everybody's binding these AI capabilities on top of them. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be out of the running. You have to, again, look at your requirements. And while AI is something that is typically going to be desirable to have, it's not necessarily table stakes. That's incredibly fascinating. Uh, <clears throat> you mentioned two things several times in your report. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking about self-healing and uh, how it interacts with the data it gathers, the AI ops tool gathers, right? Um, and that when I first read the report, my first run through, I was like, why would anyone go with a tool that didn't have self-healing or that didn't act upon the data it was gathering? And then I realized just kind of human nature, there's going to be enterprises and organizations out there that 
don't want to relinquish that control that that want to know what's happening but be able to control it at a kind of micro level and then there there's companies that you know as as you mentioned in the report that really want to focus on more uh technical aspects they want their operations team doing other things and so they need that thing automated do you think that that different philosophy comes with organization size organization type how does someone decide how much control they want to give an ai ops tool yeah i think you nailed it i mean the larger enterprises have a tendency to have more people and those people, in essence, want to do things in more of a hands-on, controlled way. Uh, and so if you're talking to them about having your AI ops tool correct problems automatically, the ability to reboot servers and restart databases and things like that, so humans don't have to go out and do those things in the middle of the night, um, while the smaller businesses will accept that because they may not have the personnel to even cover those times, the larger businesses won't accept it because they view that as a threat to autonomy as, you know, some sort of security issue, um, you know, just kind of, um, you know, scared for probably all the wrong reasons, but they certainly have a point that if they're giving up this control, you know, that bad things may occur from time to time. But the thing is, is people become more confident with the tools they're going to embrace these self-healing healing capabilities. But you got to remember, not all of the tools out there offer self-healing. Um, in many instances, they have APIs you can program and you can, you know, build the thing yourself. In other instances, it's completely built into the tool. And in some cases, the requirement trade-offs may be that we're going to give up self-healing because we want these, you know, 20 other features that are part of this tool. And I think I'm seeing that a lot. People are, you know, in essence, making trade-offs. Um, either they don't trust the self-healing capabilities or they just bypass the self-healing capabilities because they view the other aspects of the tool to be much, the much more important. In regards to self-healing, um, you know, things like security risk are constantly evolving, right? Um, the way that... Uh, malignant forces uh not to sound too like much like an epic fantasy but the the attacks that a system can encounter or the problems that a system can encounter are constantly changing uh are ai ops tools that do have self-healing capable of catching new forms of attack are they capable of the essentially learning and evolving to deal with new security issues? They're really not security tools per se. And they're all security managers that will have AI capabilities that are bound to them. That's another trend that's going on and probably the you know, topic of another report. And they are able to deal with changing attack vectors and they don't have to be constantly reconfigured to deal with, uh, with changing threats. AI ops tools may be linked with security tools, but ultimately if they're trying to leverage an AI ops tool as a security tool, I would advise against that. I would use an identity access management system with an AI system bound onto it. You know, the ability to, in essence, um, you know, uh, prevent, pre prevent attacks, being uh, able to spot attack vectors and attack services into your various systems. And so you have to remember everything's specialized out there. 
And so yeah, there's AI ops, there's AI enabled security, there's security managers, there's identity access management, uh, threat detection, automated threat detection with AI capabilities. You know, all these things are really going to be kind of bundled together to really kind of make up your system. But uh, one of the things I wouldn't tell anybody to do is really to enable AI ops to do any sort of security-based system, any sort of defense. That makes sense and uh, clarifies a lot for me. Getting into emerging tech, which I think is, you know, is always the big sexy shiny uh, in anyone's eye, right? Um, you mentioned centralized knowledge sharing and th that makes sense, right? Uh, when I assume what this means is that currently with AI ops, you attach it to your system and it learns from your system, which will take time to build its, uh, its knowledge base and its learning. Whereas with a centralized knowledge sharing, uh, there's a vast repository of knowledge and learning for it to kind of tap into and hit the ground running. Am I, <laughs> have I explained this in a way that makes sense to a layman? <laughs> Or am I completely no, I, wrong? No, you're absolutely spot on. So the idea being is kind of wisdom of the crowds and the ability to kind of crowdsource, you know, some of the operational excellence that's occurring out there. And, you know, it's very similar when you, you know, and put a new operating system on your computer, the last permission to send debug reports, you know, back to some sort of a central server where they'll trend those reports and be able to fix bugs in the software. We're a very similar concept is as we build knowledge in terms of what are the best practices and the automated best practices that are determined by some sort of an artificially intelligent knowledge model and build these things in terms of successful outcomes and patterns of inputs into those successful outcomes, we can trend those things and share that information in some sort of a centralized big brain. So instead of just having the knowledge that we would have locally that we'd have to build over time just like just like human beings ai systems have to learn as time goes on and they typically learn from the data but they get smarter over time the ability to kind of link into this master brain that'll determine things that are much more fine-tuned and so in other words instead of getting management monitoring information from our um, 5,000 servers at an enterprise level we will get management and monitoring information and best practices and successful outcomes from millions and millions of servers that are in essence put into some sort of a central brain that we're able to share upon. And that just seems like a good idea. The, the downside would be people are dead set against transmitting information outside their firewalls if they can help it. And so the minute that they think that information in terms of how they're managing and monitoring the systems with they, which they may look at as you know can be some sort of a security threat threat in some instances it can you know they're they're not going to allow it to happen so it's those who are choosing to share their um, their knowledge bases over time and share the best practices and share successful outcomes you know based on input patterns um, that are probably going to be the catalysts for making this, this centralized sharing successful. But not everybody's going to participate in it, and people are going to be a bit suspicious of it, you know, with the big brother aspect of it. But if you think about it, the minute I fire up my AI ops system, it enables to link into a bigger brain, 
and they know that um, you know packet lost on this particular server is typically going to lead to some sort of a network failure that's occurring and it's going to automatically reboot the router and basically then check again for for packet failure um, and it's able to do that out of the box without me having to teach it that's a huge advantage and i think that ultimately that's where things are heading it's just going to take a while for people to trust it i had several follow-up questions and you answered each and every one of them uh i was going to say centralized knowledge sharing sounds a lot like broccoli to me and if if anyone out there doesn't know what i mean by that go back and listen to the episode on the broccoli technologies of the internet with chris grundeman i promise it will make more sense um but it, it, I have it on here that uh, the, this sounds like something that will benefit everyone in the long run, but that typically enterprises aren't geared towards sharing. <laughs> uh, proprietary knowledge, they look at most things that they do. Uh, a lot of things are scary, uh, and you mentioned Big Brother, and that's something that's obviously top of mind for a lot of people. Uh, with privacy and uh, all that. But at the same time, you mentioned uh, mobile uh, AI ops coming, uh, not just for mobile computing, but for IoT devices. And I think a lot of people, you know, when they think IoT, they think smartphones, they think... uh, Alexa devices and smartwatches, things like that. But things like uh, wireless printers, smart TVs are also IoT. How would AI ops be involved in uh, the edge of IoT? Yeah, it's a huge issue to solve. Ultimately, as we're, and I'm involved in this, you know, as a practice right now, as we're rolling out these devices, you know, be they drones or, you know, be they tractors that are hooked up to, um, uh, to some sort of communication network where GPS tracking, be a, you know, just thousands and thousands of applications for these devices that are easily connected up. They're able to bring, you know, more value you know, into our lives. And we, you know, know them around today. They're the thermostats on our walls and the room visitor running around and, you know, the phones that we carry in our hands. The problem is, is those things are almost impossible to operate given the complexity and the distribution of those systems. So in other words, if I'm running a network of, say, connected farm equipment, which I actually have experience in doing, in building systems like that, there could be tens of thousands of things that are connected over a series of, you know, thousands of farms, you know, all over the country. And I need to operate those systems and kind of make sure they're healthy, they're reporting back to the systems, information's being gathered off of them in terms of successful, you know, tracking of where watering's occurring and where things are getting plowed and where weeds are getting picked and all these sorts of things. It's so complex and it's so numerous that human beings, I just don't think have the capability of operating those systems. So you have to really kind of put your faith in AI ops and other tool-based technology that you're able to, to in essence, leverage these things. So we're able to monitor and manage and abstract ourselves away from the complexity. So it's even more complex in dealing with management and monitoring at the enterprise level. At least we're dealing with thousands of things, not hundreds of thousands of 
things. And also those thousand things are always a bit different. They're none two are the same. Where if you're dealing with an IoT world, they're pretty much all identical devices, but they're doing different things over the long period of time. And also they're more problematic than things that sit in the data center. They typically don't have controlled environments. When you go into a data center, it's air conditioned and they keep the humidity at certain points. So the computing chips last a long time and failure is not as frequent. But if you're dealing with a hostile environment where, you know, a drone is flying through, um, you know, sub 50 minus below weather, things like that, um, the operational aspect of it to keep it going um, becomes much more of an imperative. And you have to remember that all these things are really kind of interdependent. And so if an IoT device stops transmitting information to some sort of a centralized data, database and enough of them do that, then the, the application that you're leveraging those IoT systems for is gonna cease to work. You know, in the case of the farm you know, based system, it's the ability to kind of water in the right way. So they make the field yield more food you know, to feed the planet. And you can't do that unless you have successful operations that extends down to all these devices that are all over the world that are connected in different ways that have to be managed in unique ways. One more question uh, or two more questions for you. First is you mentioned things that people need to consider as they're looking at AI ops tools. You mentioned scalability and ease of use. Ease of use makes a lot of sense to me. I understand, uh, and you mentioned uh, how data is presented to people as being important several times in the report. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, my question is, what about scalability? Uh, how, how does an AI ops tool not scale well? Yeah, they may have an upward limitation in terms of uh, the number of systems they can support. Either that could be a uh, pay-as-you-go limitation. In other words, they're charging you from one to 100 systems and 100 to 1,000 systems and things like that. But in many instances, they just don't have the ability to gather gobs and gobs of data from hundreds of thousands of systems at simultaneously at the same time and process that information. So some do, some don't. And so the scalability is something you need to look for, you know, if you're picking an AI ops tool, because, you know, while you may be successful in managing a thousand servers or a thousand resources, storage systems, compute systems, things like that. And if you scale up to uh, 10,000 or 100,000 systems, which is easily, a, which is, you know, a, a basically a small part of what most global 2000 companies are supporting these days, then you may find it's unable to deal with that amount of data simultaneously. AI ops tools are really, have some common patterns. Another one, number one, they're really just kind of push pulling information from any multiple devices and then making decisions on that information in cases of using analytics with some AI capabilities kind of bound into it. And so thousands of gigabytes of data may be coming off a single device in a single day. And depending on how fine-grained you're looking at the device and monitoring some of the details of the device. And so if you turn on all the monitoring, you have a major amount of information that's coming off of these systems. And obviously that can cause scalability issues around network connections, around database IO, around storage systems, around AI-based processing, things like that. And if the AIOps systems aren't really kind of built to scale, they're going to find that upward limit is kind of hit pretty quickly. Now you can do things like buy two AI ops tools that are similar 
and do some multiplexing between the systems. But most of the tools out there don't know how to operate in some sort of a cluster capability. So you're dealing with a single entity of an AI ops tool, and therefore you're dealing with the upper scalability limitation of the tool. And in the report we found as we looked at the tooling out there that some of the traditional players that have played in the enterprise for the last 20 years that had management and monitoring and now they have AI ops capabilities um, were able to scale up because they're used to dealing with hundreds of thousands of systems under management. Well, some of the startups had an upward scalability limitation um, because they were not necessarily running into those problem domains. So they're good at up to 10,000 systems, but you get above that, you know, has a tendency to be a bit tricky. So you have to ask yourself about the scalability before you pick these tools, because in many instances, we're looking at our requirements now in the current state, and it could be this many systems under management, but obviously we're gonna increase that over time. And also we're, we're going to increase the granularity of what we're monitoring and managing off of those systems. When we may be gathering, you know, 20 data points in one minute uh, from some systems now, it could be 10,000 data points in one second uh, as we move forward because we just need those capabilities. So can your AI, AI ops tool handle it and can it scale? That's a core question. These have all been important facets of AI ops. And unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. David, I know that you are active on LinkedIn. And in fact, you have several courses on LinkedIn learning. Uh, but I also know that you have some books out and are active on Twitter. Would you mind telling us about, uh, about those real quick? Yeah, my last book was uh, Cloud Computing and Solo Convergence for Your Enterprise. Uh, I wrote that years ago, but it's still relevant today in how you take service orientation into the world of cloud computing. Uh, I have the InfoWorld blog on InfoWorld.com. Uh, write for some other publications. I'm on NPR from time to time talking about cloud computing issues uh, and appear in a lot of papers you know, around the world in terms of just kind of an expert commentating commentating on cloud computing, commentating is a word. And uh, also check out LinkedIn. I typically push everything through there and it actually goes out to Twitter from there automatically. And, uh, you know, follow my, uh, follow my articles and especially follow my work at GigElm. I'm very proud of the report on AI ops that was just released. Uh, the other reports out there as well, uh, webinars we're doing out there and different thought leadership events. And I'm really glad to be a part of GigElm, GigElm as an organization. We are delighted to have you, David. And yeah, uh, on top of this key criteria of AI ops report, there's also a GigaOM radar for AI ops that kind of looks at the market landscape and all the vendors, well, not all, but many of the vendors out there and kind of where they fall. Are they, you know, moving forward? Are they moving very quickly? Are they top of their game? So you can find out even more through these two reports. And as David mentioned, we have just a slew of reports by David and other analysts on all manners of topics. So definitely encourage you to do that. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. I am Johnny Baldisberger for GigaOM. This has been Voices in Innovation. Just listen.